Welcome to Money Management with Mike Mail. This is Jim Harvey, president of Opus 111 Group. Today I'm substituting for your regular host, Mike Mail, who is a senior vice president of our firm and who oversees our Spokane branch. Like Mike's show last week, this is not the usual Saturday morning show in which you can call in with your questions. Naturally, we look forward to returning to the normal call-in format as soon as everyone's health and safety can be assured. However, if you have any questions you'd like us to address in future money management shows, please email them to info at opus111group.com, and we will either answer them directly or during next week's show. We also encourage and invite you to visit our website for the latest on the markets, the coronavirus, and how you might best respond. In addition, we encourage you to visit our Learn page where you will find video, audio, and written blogs uh, that you can uh, tap into to learn even more. I want to discuss something that I've described as three fundamental behavioral finance topics that are realities for us as human beings and that are dangerous for us as investors. Let's face it, we're all easily caught up in the stories that tickle our imaginations about people investing a small amount of money and achieving financial independence without any apparent effort at all. In modern day parlance, the FOMO or fear of missing out is as alive and well today as it has always been throughout recorded history. If we all followed Will Rogers' famous quote about investing, we'd all be far better off. He famously said, I'm not so much concerned in the return on my money as the return of my money. So the first segment we'll talk about is asset bubbles, where excessive greed and speculation run amok. An asset bubble occurs when exuberant investors drive the current market price for an asset far beyond the actual underlying value of that asset. We have numerous examples of those asset bubbles uh, throughout history. For example, the Dutch tulip craze of the 1630s and the South Sea bubble of 1720. More recent examples include the game stock speculation that occurred early this year, Bitcoin, which I'm sure I will get some uh, proponents of Bitcoin complaining, the real estate bubble that led to the credit crisis in 2008, and the dot-com bubble that occurred uh, between 1995 and 2000. The question is, what is it in us that we invest in things that seem to be a sure thing, and then everything collapse? Is it FOMO or something more fundamental in human nature? The second uh, segment we'll talk about is the dangers of fast money. So what do I mean? Lottery winners, cryptocurrency, where the odds are stacked impossibly against you, and yet people still dream about that one in a million chance. According to the CFP Board of Standards, almost one third of lottery winners declare bankruptcy. What about movie stars and famous athletes? There are countless stories of these suddenly wealthy people ending up with nothing at all in far too short a period of time after their fame fades. And then finally, the third segment is gullibility and hucksters. What is it in us that makes us so susceptible to outright fraud and hucksters? For example, there was a con man in the 1920s who scammed the wealthy into believing he had a box capable of copying $100 bills. He perfected a counterfeiting scheme which netted him $2.3 million in 1920 uh, over a five-year period. He scammed Al Capone and then twice successfully 
tried to sell or sold the Eiffel Tower, collecting more than a million dollars from his first successful sale of the Eiffel Tower. Why does it always seem so obvious to us when confronted by stories like that to shake our heads in disbelief about the gullibility of others, but then fall prey to modern hucksters like Bertie Madoff? And uh, the first one I want to discuss is asset bubbles, uh, which is basically when excessive greed and speculation run amok. Investors drive the current price uh, for an asset far beyond the actual underlying value of the asset just by virtue of momentum and talking to their friends and, and the like. And there are numerous examples of asset bubbles throughout history. Uh, historical examples, as I mentioned, uh, the, uh, the tulip craze of the 1630s, the South Sea bubble of 1720. But even more recent examples include uh, uh, the GameStop speculation uh, that happened earlier in 2021. Bitcoin, uh, one would argue, looks, if you look at the price chart of it, looks very similar to other bubbles the real estate bubble that created the credit crisis, and the dot-com uh, bubble. What are the similarities between all of these? And uh, there, there's some pretty interesting charts. Unfortunately, we can't show those to you on the radio. Uh, about the main stages in a bubble. You know, at the beginning, people might invest in, in, in an asset uh, because they're smart. Uh, so those are people that anticipate things. And then finally, the institutional money comes in. That'll drive up the price at some point, but it's not atypical then for there to be a, a, a first sell-off, which is sometimes called a bear trap. Then suddenly, uh, the general public gets involved, and there's media attention, enthusiasm, greed, delusion to the point where you drive the price way up. And at that point, then there's the people call it the blow-off phase or call it different things where Suddenly, there's denial, the market comes down, uh, then it goes back up. And so people are saying, ah, okay, it, it was just a, a correction. And then it, it tumbles uh, down below, and you get the uh, fear, capitulation, and despair. Effectively, the market does tend to return pricing to normal at some point, but it, it definitely goes through wild fluctuations. And so, for example, let's just take the uh, dot market, um, you know, the NASDAQ composite index rose from uh, 582% from 751.49 to 5,132 from January 95 to March of 2000. It then subsequently fell by 75% between March of 2000 and October of 2002, erasing most of the gains uh, since the bubble started. Now, there were lots of uh, online and technology entities that declared bankruptcy and faced liquidation during that period of time. Uh, companies named like pet, Pets.com, uh, Webvan, 360 Networks, uh, eToys, etc. However, there were other internet-based companies that struggled but survived that are giants today, notably Microsoft, which was already a giant, but Amazon, eBay, Qualcomm, and Cisco. Now, shares of internet uh, companies increase much faster and higher than their peers in, their real in, the, in the real sector due mostly to speculation caused by the excitement and euphoria of the new internet age. Uh, however, uh, it, it led to a market-wide overvaluation of internet firms relative to their intrinsic value. The bursting of that bubble caused market panic through massive sell-offs of dot-com company stocks, as well as other stocks, driving their values further down. And by, 20, uh, by 2002, investors 
losses were estimated at about $5 trillion with a T. So, you know, does that uh, uh, mimic the, the, the experience that people have had with other historical uh, things? Well, you know, um, uh, you know, for example, the, the tulip craze was caused because people uh, in, in Holland, it was a very wealthy economy at the time, uh, were introduced to uh, tulips in the, in the 16th century. And then in, early in the 17th century, they realized that it might take seven to 10 to 12 years even for a, a tulip to uh, grow from a seed. But if you planted a bulb, uh, you might even get... Uh, 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 you know, blooms that next year. And so suddenly in 1634, tulip mania swept through Holland. Uh, the rage for the Dutch to possess uh, tulip bulbs was so great uh, that a lot of the ordinary industry, the company country was neglected. And e the population, even to its low lowest dregs, embarked in the tulip trade. Finally, it got so crazy by 1636 that they had to put a, um, a, a tulip trading desk basically on the stock exchange of Amsterdam, but also in other towns like Rotterdam, Harlem, and, and as well. Now, when I first got into the business in 1983, I was in Anchorage, Alaska, and uh, actually knew Mike there because he was my boss. I then moved to Seattle and I came across a gentleman that had been in the business uh, since before the, the stock market crash of 1929. And he was a runner on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. And what he told me is what the experience was for many people uh, in Holland or in some of these other uh, examples of bubbles. Um, he said that when you, when you uh, uh, find that you're getting stock tips from the shoeshine guy, you beware. And that's exactly what happened in, in Holland back in the 1600s. In England, in the 18th century, early the 18th century, was the South Sea bubble. And uh, it was the same kind of thing where, where the price of things were just wildly uh, speculated out of, out of any resemblance to reality on the value underlying the, the, the thing. And uh, it went way up and then went, went day down. And if you ever go uh, to Google and just Google the charts of these, you'll see remarkable similarities to all of these. In fact, I found a chart that's pretty fascinating in which what they do is they, they, they overlaid the price of Bitcoin over a typical bubble chart. And uh, not surprisingly, it looks scarily similar. Um, in the GameStop thing that occurred in early February uh, of this year, um, uh, what happened was that some uh, individual investors, uh, very small investors in some cases, found out how hedge funds worked. And there were a lot of hedge funds that were, um, that were speculating that the price of GameStop would drop. Uh, on January 5th, the price of the stock was 1737. On January 27th, it had gone to 347.51. Why? Because these people all decided, well, we're going to stick it to the man, and the man in this case being the hedge fund managers, and we're going to buy. Uh, what that does, if you're a shorter in the market, you've sold something you don't own, and presumably your loss is endless because you have at some point have to buy it back. Now, you, of course, sold it at a price that you thought 
was above the price that you would have to buy it back. But if buying frenzy and buying momentum uh, puts it the other way, your losses could be limitless. I mean, you might have to buy it back at 100, 300, 500, $1,000 a share. And so that's what, in fact, uh, they did. They drove the price up. Um, uh, then on the 28th, so on the 27th, it was 347. On the 28th, it had dropped to 193. And then on the 29th, it had gone way back up to 325. And then on February 2nd, it was 90. And on February 18th, it had dropped to 40 again. Now, let's leave aside the fact that, you know, that's not a ride that most investors want to stay with. And you could argue that uh, they, they even have a call it a new name for this. It's called meme investing. But the reality is, do you really want to play in that? And so when you find yourself in a situation in which everyone knows that you can't lose money if you buy this thing, and you ex are experiencing what we call FOMO or fear of missing out, that's a pretty damn good sign that you're facing something that is a bubble. And uh, it doesn't matter you know, whether it's recent or you were a human being back in the 16th century or 17th century, uh, there's so many uh, uh, examples where it's a normal human characteristic to get caught up in a frenzy and think, wow, this time it's different. Well, uh, after almost 40 years in the business, I can tell you, no, this time it's just the same like it always has been. And our recommendation is not to get caught up in that stuff, to have a plan, to stick with it, to work with an advisor. Doesn't have to be us, but work with somebody you trust, and hopefully they can keep you from making those kinds of mistakes. I mean, I want to talk about fast money. So what do I mean by fast money? What I'm talking about are people that get a huge chunk of money in a short period of time. And that could be lottery winners or athletes or even movie stars and celebrities. And it's a, it's a challenge because uh, they're not well-equipped to handle suddenly coming into so much cash. So every year, let's just talk about lottery winners. Uh, every year, Americans spend more money on the lottery than they do on movie tickets, music, professional sporting events, video games, and books combined. According to a Gallup poll, more than half of American adults play the lottery in a given year. Now, there are numerous behavioral and psychological reasons people play the lottery, despite such poor odds of ever winning. Near misses and actual successes activate the same region in the brain, so people who get a few numbers right here and there keep playing because they were so close. Our brains also have a tough time just dealing with large numbers. So people have a hard time distinguishing between, say, odds of one out of 2,000 versus odds of one out of 300 million. And yet the odds for winning the lottery are so astronomically low, that, uh, but it's still fun to uh, dream about what you would do with oodles of money. Like maybe you'd do some good with it, um, pay off your debt, buy a new house, help those in needs, go on your dream vacation. But there's also a high likelihood that you would blow through the money. Research shows people who win 50,000 to 150,000 in the lottery are actually more likely than the average American to declare bankruptcy within three to five years. And uh, lottery winners rarely save much of their winnings. One study found lottery winners save just 16 cents on the dollar. Now, a 16% savings rate is better than most Americans, but it also means that you blew 84%. Um, now, there are countless stories of people who won big on the lottery only to blow it later. 
Uh, William Bud Post won $16 million in 1988 by playing the lottery. It certainly didn't help him as much as one would think. Post lost a third of it when one of his former wives sued him for her share of the winnings. Then his own brother hired a hitman to kill him for his money. Fortunately, that assassination attempt never got off the ground. But he was forced to file for bankruptcy within a year of winning um, his windfall. Uh, and, and he ended up uh, living on Social Security and food stamps until he died broke in 2006. According to the Certified Financial Planning Board of Standards, almost one third of lottery winners declare bankruptcy. Uh, and these winners end up in a worse place than they were in before winning gobs of money. In addition, lottery winners have been shown to be more susceptible to drug and alcohol abuse, depression, divorce, suicide, or estrangement from their family. Now, there's a lot to unpack here. Uh, but one of the main problems with fast money is that you don't have time to acclimate your, to your newfound wealth. Most of us financial mortars spend our lives uh, uh, build, slowly building up our nest egg by saving methodically and investing and growing their paycheck over time. This gives people time to adjust as income and wealth slowly build. However, people who come into large amounts of money very quickly don't have that same adjustment period. While it can be fun to dream about, not everybody can handle that newfound responsibility that comes with fast money. Wealth, look, let's face it, wealth is simply the difference between what you make and what you spend. So there's no secret sauce. You just have to adjust to make sure that your lifestyle doesn't creep as your income rises. So that's one of the main reasons why so many lottery winners go broke. Their lifestyle grows exponentially larger than their pile of money. It's also one of the main reasons so many professional athletes run into money problems. And when you make a ton of money, especially at a young age, you are bound to be subject to vultures from the financial industry who are circling to take advantage of that newfound wealth. Let's, let's explore that in more detail. Let's talk about the NFL. And there's a story uh, about a, a really notable player uh, that is, informs us. First, the median NFL player earns $3.2 million over the course of their career, which lasts 3.3 years on average. This is more than most of us earn in our entire lives, but it's not always enough to see these players through their days after they hang up their pads. Unfortunately, almost one in five football players file for bankruptcy within 12 years of exiting the league, and many of those bankruptcies occur soon after retirement. Um, a group of economists gathered data on over 2,000 players drafted between 1996 and 2003, tracking earnings and bankruptcy filings of those players. Players start going broke two years or so after retirement through a combination of exorbitant spending, which, of course, they don't adjust after their career, a lack of savings and highly leveraged investments that go bad. These numbers were not impacted by the level of earnings or length of time player either. The authors of the study claimed, quote, moreover, bankruptcy rates are not affected by a player's earnings, total earnings or career length. Having played for a long time and been well paid does not provide much protection about going against going bankrupt. So uh, that's staggering to me. So that even if somebody makes a ton of money, they're just as likely to go bankrupt as the ones that only make 3.2 million. 
So Steve Atwater, who was a great safety for the uh, uh, Denver Broncos, who's eight-time Pro Bowler and a two-time Super Bowl champion, he, <clears throat> when he was at uh, University of Arkansas, he majored in banking and finance while playing college ball. Uh, following more than a decade uh, playing professional football, he tried his hand at the stock market, but eventually decided to outsource his investment to a professional. He was a victim of financial fraud, courtesy of a guy named Donald Lukens, an advisor who sold real estate investments. Lucan duped Atwater and 200 or so other uh, uh, investors by inflating property values, taking obscene commissions, lying about certain projects, and making the occasional transfers of funds from one investor to another to keep up charade. Atwater lost a decent chunk of change, but at least he ended up with a piece of property. There's another example of a, of a, of a very notable uh, money manager who duped a lot of players named Kirk Wright. Uh, who founded a firm called International Management Associates. Um, and he had earned a coveted spot on the uh, um, National F uh, uh, Football Players Association's uh, Financial Advisors Program. That, that automatically provided some trust in the minds of the athletes. And uh, they did not find out that this guy... Uh, Wright was uh, basically a, a real shard. I mean, he was doing short selling, which you may or may not know, but it's basically selling uh, a stock uh, because you think it's going to go down. So you sell it, but you don't own it. And then you hope to buy it back at a lower price. When they pulled uh, the, the cover off this, what they found out was that this guy who had managed, I don't know, 180 to 150, $180 million, basically lost it all. And when they actually looked at his history of trades, he almost never had a trade work out. Um, so he was, you know, lavish lifestyle. He, you know, had a big uh, uh, wedding reception and, you know, bought a Lamborghini and, and all of that stuff to, to maintain the facade uh, that, uh, that, you know, he was a trustworthy guy and, and he made a lot of money. So if you really wanted to do something powerful, then what you would do is, is listen to him. And at one point he claimed to uh, this particular fund to generate 10% a month, 10% a month is otherworldly. Uh, most advisors would kill to average 10% a year. Um, but he was basically saying that, that, you know, his would be about 200% a year. Uh, well, you know what? J.P. Morgan is attributed with the following quote, quotation, nothing, nothing so undermines your financial judgment as the sight of your neighbors growing rich. So I'm going to close this out by saying, you know, those they also found in Canada that neighbors of, of uh, lottery winners also were more likely to go bankrupt because they wanted to position themselves to keep pace with the, the person winning the lottery. Bottom line. Um, fast money is tough. You should find a good advisor. Uh, you should have a plan. You should make sure that you're setting things up to fund your lifestyle for the rest of your life and pay no attention to your neighbors or your friends who say, oh, this is a sure thing because almost invariably it isn't. Um, today, I want to tell you the story of a guy named Victor Lustig, who operated in the 1920s in New York, in Chicago, and in Paris and hoodwinked some pretty powerful people and uh, collected a lot of money. This guy uh, carried himself around as the Count, 
uh, which of course was nonsense. And he used to stay at luxury hotels and he would wait for people to show up who uh, would show up in a limo. So obviously they had money. His first scheme in New York was uh, something called the Romanian money box. And so he'd be sitting in the bar and he would let slip that he had this uh, machine that would basically uh, copy a hundred dollar bill. And of course that piqued the interest of these wealthy but naive uh, uh, rich people and, and then say, okay, so uh, he would invite them up to his room and he would, he had this, this wooden box with brass dials and, and whatever. And he put a hundred dollar bill into this magic wooden box. And he said there was a substance called radium that, that would uh, duplicate the, the, the bill. In the meantime, why don't we go down and have dinner and drinks and, uh, the only downside is it takes about six hours for the, the the bill to be reproduced. So let's go have a good time. So they went down and they'd have dinner and drinks. And six hours later, they come back up and to find that a $100 bill had appeared at the other end of the box. And of course, these uh, uh, people were instantly interested. And this guy played it pretty cool. He'd say, yeah, well, you know, he'd wait. And, and uh, uh, you know, essentially what he had was a wooden box with 200 bucks in it. But these people would pay tens of thousands of dollars for this. And so he did this a number of times, wore out his welcome in New York, and then decided that he would go to Chicago. Now, in the 20s, there was a guy named Scarface. You might have seen countless movies about named Al Capone. And he knew that he was a con man, so he would go first to Al Capone to get his permission to operate on his turf. And so he did that. And he said listen, uh, I need to, um, you know, he's still carrying himself as a count. I need to borrow $50,000 and in 60 days, I'll double your money. And so Al Capone said, fine, count in 60 days, double my money. So in 60 days, he came back and uh, he said, well, unfortunately, my get rich quick scheme didn't work. And Al Capone was about ready to get really furious when the count basically handed him back an envelope and said, you know, I'm sorry, uh, uh, you know, um, but but basically my sincerest apologies. This is most embarrassing. Things didn't work out the way I had thought they would. So uh, I should have loved to double your money for you and for myself. Lord knows that I need it. But the plan just didn't materialize. So Capone told this guy Lustig that he was expecting either 100000 or nothing. So he was taken back uh, by the man's honesty. So somehow the most notorious gangster on the planet not only gave him a pass, but Capone even out, counted out $5,000 from the pile to give the count a head start in his uh, business dealing. Now, here's the kicker. Lustig had never even dreamed up a money scheme to begin with. The $50,000 was sitting in a security box the entire month. What his plan was to gain the Bob's boss trust, and that's exactly what he did. So... Uh, he then decided, okay, I've worn out New York, I've worn out Chicago, and he goes to Paris. And he realizes that there's something about the Eiffel Tower that's pretty interesting. So, you know, the Eiffel Tower was built in 1889 as part of the World's Fair. It was supposed to only stand for 20 years. And the government spent a million dollars, you know, uh, erecting this thing. And there were lots of naysayers. Of course, the French are notorious for being a little snobby. I mean, uh, even today, they look at the, uh, the, the, the glass pyramid by the Louvre and say it's a, 
you know, it's a pockmark on the on the on the face of Paris. But they had similar thoughts about the Eiffel Tower. And so people said, well, the wind would be too dangerous for people to ascend to that height. And the government wasn't keen on spending the money. And uh, uh, but hopefully that they would make enough money for 20 years so that uh, it would make it worthwhile. Now, the engineering construction required to build this was stunning. I mean, the iron plates used to build the tower, if you had stretched them end for end, would, would stretch 43 miles. There were 7 million holes that were drilled in them. The iron used to construct the project weighed over 7,000 tons, and it just required even 60 tons of paint. Each piece was traced out to be accurate to the tenth of a millimeter. There were 2.5 million rivets used in the construction. And at the time, it was higher than any uh, uh, edifice in the world, including the uh, Washington Monument. Ludwig saw this and they were talking about tearing it down. I mean, originally that was the plan to tear down the Eiffel Tower after 20 years. So he saw an opportunity. So he decided that he would sell the Eiffel Tower to the highest bidder. So what he did is he came up with a whole infrastructure. He came up with a, a, a fake uh, business uh, name, business cards, and a fake government role for himself. Uh, He even had an official sounding yet uh, completely made up title, Director General of the Ministry of Posts and Telegraphs. And then using one of the finest hotels in the city, a hotel called the Hotel de Crillon, which was in the Place de Concorde, he invited the biggest scrap metal dealers in town and some of them for this secret business proposal. Um, And he said, because of engineering faults and costly repairs and political problems that I cannot discuss, the tearing down of the Eiffel Tower has become mandatory. Uh, he then shocked them by saying, and I'm gonna, uh, uh, we're going to auction it off to the highest bidder. Of course, many of the pap- people at the table were, were in disbelief, but he assured them that if the government was able to turn a profit on the deal, it would minimize the protests from citizens. So he then did this auction and, and sold it to a, a gentleman named Andre Poisson, who was relatively new to the area and was trying to make a name for himself. And so he uh, said that his offer of 250,000 francs, which was roughly a million dollars today, was in fact the winning bid. Once he learned that he had won, Poisson uh, became wary of the whole operation. So to seal the deal, Lustwick demanded a bribe for securing the transaction. And of course, everyone assumed that all Parisian government officials were corrupt. So the bribe was the final nail in the coffin to make it seem legit. So Ludwig secured the cash, handed over the official paperwork to finalize the sale. And after a number of failed attempts to actually claim possession of the Eiffel Tower, Poisson finally realized he'd been swindled. Now, of course, by this point, Ludwig had already fled the country, but he was waiting for a newspaper story to say about the guy that had been hoodwinked into into selling the tower. But Poisson was so embarrassed that that story never, never happened. And and ironically, this this guy, Ludwig, was so addicted to the con that he came back and tried to sell it a second time, uh, but he got run out of town. Then he went back to the States and perfected a counterfeiting scheme that netted him $2.3 million uh, over a five-year period. So what's the the message here? When you think in modern terms, you think, well, how can anybody be so silly to, to be susceptible to that? And then you hear about 
people like Bernie Madoff or Ponzi schemes, uh, where where people that are otherwise sophisticated and wealthy and you'd think would know better would not fall prey to that kind of thing. And yet they do. So I think um, it is a natural human instinct to fall prey to that kind of thing. And I'm just going to leave you with a quote from a, a, a 17th century poet from England who uh, uh, wrote a number of interesting books. He translated uh, essays by Montaigne into English and also wrote about uh, uh, the complete gamester. But basically he said, there are some frauds that are so well conducted that it would be stupidity not to be deceived by them. My advice is don't be deceived. There are no magic bullets. There are no simple answers and uh, get rich quick schemes never pan out. So, Next week, uh, Mike will be back. Thanks so much for your time and attention and listening in this week. This is Jim Harvey, president of Opus 111 Group. And you've been listening to Money Management with Mike Mail on KXLY News Radio 920 in Spokane. Opinions, forecasts, and case studies are for illustrative purposes only and may only be relevant at the time of recording. Certain sectors in the market, such as international and emerging markets, certain fixed income, including high-yield bonds, precious metals, mid- and small company securities, have greater risks that are generally outlined in their prospectus, contract, or offering document. Any guarantees or protections offered through insurance products are subject to the claims-paying ability of the issuing insurance company. Diversification, asset allocation are no guarantees or protections against loss. Past performance is no guarantee of future results, and there is always risk associated with investment.